Good morning. I'm one of those you watching at home as well. Trust the Lord is present with you in your homes, wherever you may be watching, and we're glad to have you with us. So if you got your Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, you know, normally I try to kind of, often I'll, I'll, I'll try to wade you into the shallow end of the pool so we can kind of get comfortable with the water and make our way in. We don't have time for that today. We're just diving into the deep end. Everybody, all right? So be prepared to be shocked by the water. Not really. I don't know. It's a metaphor. Just go with it, all right? So we're going to just kind of dive right in here. Uh, we're in this series now in, in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at that, we're at the beginning of that sermon where we're in this section called the Beatitudes, where he is explaining to us the kind of life that experiences his blessing, the kind of life that experiences his favor. And therefore, the only kind of person is truly happy. I mean, that's really what he's saying when he says, blessed are these kinds of people. He's saying, this is, the only, this is the only person who's really, truly happy in the sincerest sense of that word. Not in this sort of circumstantially happy, temporarily happy kind of way, but this steadfast happiness that only God can give. He's saying, this is the kind of person that's happy, truly and deeply. So we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 today which says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, a word of warning for you all as we dive into this text. And it's this, if we just come to play church today, you're gonna walk out harder of heart than you walked in. Now that's true every week when we come to God's word, it tests us. God's word tests us whether we will have a tender heart before him and say, your word is true and I commit myself to obedience. And when we say yes to that and walk out in that knowledge, we walk out more tender, softer before him, more formed, more shaped by him. It's a good thing. But be warned that when we come with no intention to let God's word sift us and test us, it makes us harder. Do you understand? This is the warning when we hear these words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What you're gonna be tempted to do today is to not come with open hands before the Lord and say, you measure everything in my life. And you tell me if it bears the mark of righteousness. You're going to be tempted to justify the things in your life that are not righteousness. That's the temptation. I'm just warning you now. And you're going to say, boy, that was a good message for somebody else. You can always find a way to justify the things you do. Always. There will always be an avenue out, a way of saying, well, but this caveat, this circumstance, this way, this thing, Trent doesn't understand this part, or I'm justified because of this. Be warned that the word of God must sift you today, and it must sift me today, so that we let God speak to us about his righteousness and how well we are taking hold of it and seeing it applied to our lives. So now you know what I mean when I said we're jumping into the deep end, okay? Heavy, quick, all right? Now, here's the best way I know to approach this text. We're gonna break it down phrase by phrase. We're gonna look at the three key phrases in this, right? We're gonna look at righteousness, what is that? We're gonna look, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? What does that phrase mean, very simply? And what does Jesus mean when he says the promise for those who do that, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
will be satisfied. What does that mean? What does it mean to be satisfied? So we're gonna look at those three things. And then because I think righteousness is more caught than taught, you know what I mean by that, I just wanna show you the stories of some heroes. I wanna put you in the presence of greatness and let you see what it looked like for some of the saints of old to hunger and to thirst for righteousness that we might learn from them. We might stand on their shoulders a bit today. Okay, so that's our, our roadmap. So let's just begin there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is Jesus saying when he's using this term righteousness in Matthew chapter five, verse six? Now, here's, I'll give you my, my short and sweet definition, and here, here it is. In the scriptures, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to have their thoughts, their actions, their words, and their emotions line up with God's will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to have their thoughts, their words, their actions, and their emotions line up with God's will. That's a very short and sweet definition of righteousness. An even shorter definition of blessed are those who long to be right with God in every way. Now listen, when the scriptures, there's something we need to kind of get straight in our minds here. Often, particularly with Paul in the New Testament, when we see this term righteousness, we see it used in a way that it is meant to talk about the righteousness we receive from Jesus when we believe in him. And it's what theologians call imputed righteousness or justifying righteousness, which just means this, the righteousness that allows God to legally declare us right with him, to say, you have had all your sins taken care of because Jesus has paid for them and you've trusted in him. That's what we call justification, a legal declaration before God that we are right with him. When we talk about that kind of righteousness, we're talking about the status that we possess before God. And we should say amen that we've received that status, yes? It's who we are. No longer fundamentally, if you are in Christ Jesus, no longer fundamentally sinner, but fundamentally saint. Changed at the very core of your being. That's not the way Jesus is talking about righteousness here. Not justifying righteousness. He's talking about a different version of that. He's talking about what we would call sanctifying righteousness, which is just another way of saying the kind of righteousness that starts in our hearts, that's that justifying righteousness, the thing we've been given by God through faith in Jesus, and it making its way from our heart to the tips of our fingers and the tips of our toes. From the top of our head to the soles of our feet, that every part of our life, every thought, every action, every word, every emotion would be dictated by him. That's the way Jesus is talking about righteousness here. Do you see the distinction between the two? They are related. You can't have sanctifying righteousness without justifying righteousness. It always begins there. But Jesus is not just talking about the status we have before God as righteous through the blood of Jesus. He's talking about practical righteousness that works its way out in our life so that we are changed. Yes, you with me? That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are those who want to be more like Jesus in every aspect of their lives. Now, the reason we know that is because remember the context here. The context is not those who don't yet believe, and therefore he would be saying, hey, you would be blessed if you would then believe in me and receive my righteousness. He's saying to those who already believe, do you remember this? As we started, we understood that the primary audience 
for this sermon is those who already believe. They are Jesus' followers. Therefore, he's not saying to them, blessed would you be if you took on my righteousness. He's treating them as those who have that, who are his, that have believed, trusted in him. And he's saying, now, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst to see that righteousness work its way out in your life, from your heart to the top of your head and the soles of your feet as we see. So that's what Jesus is talking about there. Now let me, let me say this. As we think about this, there are two ways. I've, I've grown up in church. I, I came to, by the grace of God, my parents raised me uh, in among the people of God and I had the privilege of learning God's word from a young age and he saved me uh, from my rebellion against him when I was seven years old. Man, what a good gift. So being raised in church, here's what I have found. Years and years and years of spending time among, among my people, I have found that we practically dismiss this idea of righteousness in two ways. The first is that because we have been taught, rightly so, that we will never fully accomplish this righteousness until Jesus comes back or until we die and are brought into his presence, because we rightly believe that, we act as if there's, there, there's very little effort we need to put for, uh, forwards towards it in this life. We sort of say, well, if I'm never gonna get there, why try that hard? Why work to see myself grow in righteousness? That's, I think, one of the ways that I have watched us excuse sin and excuse a lack of hunger for, for, and thirst for righteousness. The second way is this, is because, and, I, and honestly, friends, I think often it's a false claim, is that we say that we're worried about moralism. We're worried about self-righteousness. We're worried, because we understand that we're saved by grace through faith, we think, well, then there's no work to be done. There's no effort to be made. And if I were to put forth effort, that would be undoing somehow the grace that's given only through faith and not by works. And friends, I wanna say that's not true. I want you to understand that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are to put serious effort into growing in righteousness. It's not moralism. It's not the pathway to legalism and self-righteousness to say, I will strive with all the energy God puts within me to be right with him, to be righteous in my thoughts to be righteous in my deeds, to be righteous in my emotions. And that's the hardest one, by the way. Down at the deep level of the emotions to say, no, I want those to be right. It's a great thing to feel an emotion that's not good and to exercise self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit and then to do the right thing in spite of how you feel. That's a really awesome thing. But don't you know that we want even more than that? We want that kind of sanctification, that kind of righteousness, that what I feel is right, not just what I do. That's how far we wanna go, yes? We want that kind of righteousness. Now listen, here's moralism. Here's what leads to self-righteousness. It's when you believe that that striving towards righteousness, that that somehow earns it for you, that God owes it to you. He owes you growth in righteousness through your effort. That's not true. And the second is when you believe that you can do it in your own strength and not the power of the Holy Spirit. That's moralism. Moralism is when I say, I will pick myself up by my bootstraps. I will effort my way towards it. That is not the same thing as saying, I will work with all the energy that God puts within me so that I might grow in righteousness. So friends, don't make the mistake. I'm urging you. 
Don't make the mistake of saying, well, if I'm never gonna get there, why try that hard? And I'm not gonna try hard because that's the pathway to legalism. It is not the pathway to legalism and moralism if you understand that you must work with the energy and the power of the spirit that he puts within you. But there's real work to be done. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about when he says righteousness, this sanctifying righteousness. Now let's move to the next phrase. And it's this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who hunger and thirst. Now what Jesus is doing there is he's using a metaphor, obviously, to help us get the picture. If you've ever partaken of the discipline of fasting, where you've you know, withheld food uh, from your body so that you might pray, so that you might seek after the Lord, so that you might ask for his hand to move in some area of your life, then you've experienced what he's talking about here. And everyone's been hungry uh, or thirsty at some point, but he's talking about, essentially, the way that we long for the righteousness of Christ to be present in our life should feel the way it feels when we have not eaten for a very long time. When we find ourselves, that you know, when, when you're hungry, you, your body reminds you constantly of it, doesn't it? You can't escape it. Every, every three minutes, your, your stomach says, feed me. I am hungry, this hurts, it gnaws at you. It constantly returns to your mind. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying there should be an intense longing for righteousness in our lives. When he says hunger and thirst, it's his metaphorical way of saying intense longing. Long for it, yearn for it. Let it gnaw at you that there's not more of it in you that you should want more in increasing measure. Now listen, there's a, there's a grace in this phrase that I really love because he doesn't say, blessed are those who are righteous, does he? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which tells me that you don't have to be, this is not just for the spiritual giants among us. This is not just for those who, he's not saying the blessing will come when you, uh, when you reach a certain level of righteousness. That's every other religious system in the world, by the way. Just get to a certain level of accomplishment, of achievement, of self-discipline or self-fulfillment or self-actualization. I mean, you name it, whatever the version is. Just follow the path long enough, faithfully enough, and boy, won't you be good. And, and that's what's gonna, ha- you're gonna get all these good things that's gonna come from it. That is not the way Christianity and the scriptures speak about what it is to be in relationship with God. What he's saying to us here and the grace of this phrase is he's saying, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst wherever you are today. You could have been wagging your finger or shaking your fist at God for the last 10 years and you can begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness today. Every single one of us has this offer, this promise made available to us. Not you will be blessed when you achieve righteousness. Blessed are you when you hunger and you thirst for it. Today, hear the call of God through his spirit to you. (coughs) He is inviting you to begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, maybe for the first time. He is inviting you to hunger and thirst anew in a renewed way. This year has worn us down. It's been exhausting. And my guess is that many of you recognize that your hunger and thirst for righteousness has begun to wane. 
This is a renewed invitation to you. To hunger and to thirst for righteousness. The righteousness is alignment with the will of God in every aspect of our lives. Hungering and thirsting is an intense longing for that. And then what does he mean when he says, you will be satisfied? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's a couple things at play there that are really important for us to, to grasp. That's the blessing that he's promising. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. In other words, the thirst that you feel, the hunger that you feel, it will be filled. You will be filled up. Now, here's two important lessons for us from this promise that we can just be so glad in. The first is he's promising you that if you hunger and thirst for this, for his righteousness, you will have it. You will have it. And the justifying righteousness that I talked about, the way the scriptures quite often talk about it, the gift of what is given to us through faith in Jesus, is the down payment and the promise that the sanctifying righteousness, the completion of it, will be brought about. If Jesus has given you his righteousness as your state of being before God, your status before God, then you can be assured that what he will also do is bring that righteousness into every aspect of your life. It will come to pass. So you don't have to worry, you don't have to worry that you will hunger and thirst for this and that hunger and thirst will never be satisfied. It will be, and that's a really good promise. Now, friends, one of the things that I, I find is that we also, and this is a caveat to that same idea, is that we act as if... Um, the things that we hunger and thirst for in this life that are not righteousness, you know, whatever they may be, and the list is long, whatever those things are, we convince ourselves that though the reason we don't want to hunger and thirst for righteousness is because we think it won't truly satisfy and these things will. That this thing is gonna satisfy. I mean, at the end of, at the bottom of every sin you and I have ever committed is really that we desire the wrong things. Do you know that? At the bottom of it is, is wrongly aimed desire. I want this, I want acceptance, I want uh, power, I want money, I want control, I want security. Whatever our wrongly aimed desire is, it ultimately ends up leading us into sin. That, that's all sin is, is wrongly aimed desire then executed upon. And we act as if this thing will satisfy and righteousness of God will not. And so we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, we hunger and thirst for this other thing. But part of what this text is telling us is not just blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, in other words, you will have it. You will have the righteousness that you hunger and thirst for. It's not just telling us that. It's also telling us that the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for is truly the only thing that satisfies. So he's being exclusionary here. We might say it this way, Blessed only are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they only will be satisfied. What I'm saying is this, church, is that you will not be satisfied through hungering and thirsting for anything else. It will not. It's not as if, because you could read this, you could say, well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That's awesome. He's telling us one possible pathway to satisfaction, and there's another one too, and I'm gonna choose the other one. That's not what he's saying. He's not, it's not as if he's saying, hey, 
the righteousness of, that you hunger and thirst for uh, of mine is the steak dinner, but you know, there's a, there's a barbecue plate over here you could have too. So just choose whichever one you like more. He's saying, no, the only thing, the only food that truly satisfied, satisfies is my righteousness worked out in your life from head to toe. Are you with me? He's making a claim here to be the only thing that satisfies. Now, that's about the best way I know to help you understand each of those phrases and to put that teaching together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those are the component parts. But as I said, I think righteousness is more caught than taught. Now, what I wanna show you is the lives of some saints and what it looked like. What does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let me show you. In the Psalms, I wanna show you several psalmists. We're gonna look at Psalm 63, Psalm 42, and Psalm 84. I'm just gonna read a couple verses from each of these. Now listen, friends, listen. There's something to derive from each one of these. Listen to the common theme of someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Psalm 63, verse one, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, though I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 42, verses one through five. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Do you see the common theme? What do those who hunger and thirst for righteousness look like? The sons of Korah, David, here in these Psalms, they look like people who hunger and thirst for God himself. To be in his presence and not just to be with him, not just to be where he is, but to hunger and thirst for his presence and then to declare his praise with 
with reckless abandon, to say with everything in me, not to come in in some measured way and to say, God, you're good. You're the creator of everything. I, I, I like you. My soul pants for you like I haven't had a drink of water in a week. I need you. You're everything. To worship you right now is greater than anything else that I could be doing. I want to praise you and I want to be with you where you are and what your mind says. I want to know. I want to be with you. I want to be righteous. I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness because I want the blessing that comes from it. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness because you're righteous. And I want you. I want no one but you. Nothing else satisfies. Your love is better than life. And so my lips will praise you. You see it, church? person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness hungers and thirsts to be with God. And listen to this. Because these psalms are written at a time where God had caused his presence to dwell in a specific place in a specific way and people had to come together and go there and they longed to be there in the courts of the Lord in the temple of the Lord. They're saying, I remember when, I remember when. And now I can't because of difficulty and persecution in my life. I can't go with God's people and be with them in the presence of God. And now, because of Jesus, we have been granted access to God all the time. When you woke up this morning, he was there. When you went into your bathroom and brushed your teeth, he was with you. If you are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. It is astounding in a way I cannot even communicate to you. Hear my urgency because it's not enough. I can't yell loud enough. I cannot speak with enough urgency to help you see and understand that throughout the history of the world, no one has thought this way. That God would come and say, I give myself to you and put myself in you. And everywhere you go, you can now come before me without reservation or fear. You can bring your requests, your desires, your heartache, all of it to me all the time, every day. Does that stop us from longing for him? We take for granted we, t- we fail to see the miracle and the cost of Christ to bring that miracle to us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because God is righteous and we want him. That's the first thing I want you to see. These heroes of the faith, they longed to worship God and to be with him. But let's ask this question then. What, what keeps us, what diminishes our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we recognize that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who want God and those who want to be with him and praise him, then the thing that is the danger to our hunger and thirst is a low view of God himself. It's allowing anything to diminish our view of God where we lower him. We lower his omnipotence. We lower his omniscience. We lower his sovereignty. Anything that causes us to think less of him than he actually is diminishes our hunger and thirst 
for him. Fight against it, rail against it. Everything in your being and in your power, maintain a high view of God. Keep lifting your view of him higher and refuse to take it lower. And here's how we lower our view of God. When we have some desire that we know competes with God and isn't of him, and we want that thing more than we want him, we lower our view of God so that we can justify getting the thing that we want. Don't do it. Let him dictate to you what to do with that desire rather than let it sneak up on you from behind and get you to just, oh, no, God's okay with that. God's okay with that. Listen to the word of God. Let it speak to you. The next heroes I wanna point out to you are Ruth and Daniel. Now, I could give you a long list in this category, but listen, I'm gonna summarize their story for you. And, uh, you know, I, I hope maybe through your Bible reading you, you've become familiar with the stories of Ruth and Daniel, but if you're not, I, I think I'll give you enough to kind of catch you up to speed. I love the story of Ruth, this hero of the faith, who uh, in her story, she's a Moabite woman. She's not from among the people of God. She marries an Israelite man. He dies. Her mother-in-law, her father-in-law has died as well, and now her mother-in-law is gonna go back to Israel rather than stay in Moab. And she says to Ruth and Ruth's sister-in-law, who's also lost her husband, at a time where to have a husband was to have any economic hope, right? This is a time where uh, women were incredibly vulnerable and God goes out of his way to protect them in a really uh, magnificent and marvelous way. And Ruth, in this moment, her sister-in-law goes back, goes back to her own gods, goes back to her own country. And Ruth, this remarkable woman who wants God, listen to what she says in Ruth chapter one, verse 15 to 17. This is Naomi, her mother-in-law talking. Naomi said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. There's the key. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death me from you. Do you see what's happening there? Here's Ruth who recognizes that Naomi comes from the people who worship the true God and she's saying, no, I will go with you. I won't return to my home. She is forsaking, in her mind probably, any opportunity to remarry, any opportunity to be secure. She is attaching herself to another widow who's too old to have much hope of any provision being made for her or perhaps a renewed marriage. She is taking an immense risk. We read that story and we think of it as like, oh, that's kind of sweet. She sticks with her mother-in-law. It's not sweet, it's costly. She's taking a huge risk all so that she will be with God's people and with Naomi uh, in to do what is right before the Lord. Then think about Daniel. Now, I, here's my confession. Daniel's my absolute favorite. Daniel's my hero of heroes. Other than Jesus, Daniel is my hero of heroes in the scripture because this guy is taken into exile from his home. He, rule, he serves under three foreign idolatrous kings who worship idols and are just ridiculously messed up on numerous fronts, and yet he serves them so faithfully that at every turn, they keep saying, hey, I need you at my right hand. I need you to be my counselor. And then those around him get jealous 
And in spite of the fact that he serves with such excellence, he ends up being thrown in jail for his righteousness, thrown in a lion's den for his righteousness, and yet at no point does he choose to do anything other than to serve God faithfully. And there's this beautiful, I just think he is the preeminent example uh, of, of the kind of man, the kind of person who serves God faithfully in a wicked world while maintaining absolute integrity. And in Daniel chapter six, the most famous story from Daniel's life, it's probably, if you didn't grow up in church, you probably even have heard this one, Daniel in the lion's den. Listen to what this says in Daniel chapter six. I'm gonna read verse, just verse 10 here. Now, what had happened is all these other jealous rulers had come and said to the king, you need to establish a, an edict that no one can worship you or pray to you for 30 days. And the king thinks that's a great idea because the king's a fool. And Daniel, this is how he responds. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. As he had done previously. In other words, nothing, no cost that would be paid was enough to shake Daniel from doing what he knew to be right. So what, what do you see as the themes? And by the way, it's the same theme in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the same theme in Abraham. It's the same theme in Joseph. Uh, in Joseph. It's the same theme uh, in Moses. And it's the same theme in, in Paul. We see it again and again. Here's the theme. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are willing to pay a cost. They're willing to pay a cost to do what is right. And the way they can do that is because they trust God. They're full of faith. They believe he will show up. They believe he will show up. Friends, there's always a cost to be paid when it comes to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And usually, it's wherever we are most out of step with the culture of our time and day. Wherever we as the people of God are most, or the ways of God, wherever they're most out of step, right? Back in the ancient Near East, it, it, was, it was multiple gods versus one god. Right? So the people were totally out of step when it came to the areas of saying, there's one God and he rules over everything and we will serve him alone. And they kept getting demanded to worship numerous gods, other gods, false gods. And wherever they were out of step, they had to pay a cost to that being out of step. It's no different today. We're way out of step in areas of sexuality and gender as the church and what the scriptures teach. And that will be the place. We will pay the greatest cost. And friends, can I tell you that I particularly speak to you, my, young, my younger friends. You're gonna pay a greater cost than those of us who are older have paid because we're not as out of step with our generation on that issue, although increasingly becoming more so. But you are way out of step if you choose to believe what the Bible believes, what the Bible speaks about this issue. You're way out of step with what your, what your generation believes. You're way out of step. And so can I just tell you, it's, it's maybe, and you may feel this, you know, me at, at mid-40s to stand up here and, and say, well, I pay a cost for being different about what the Bible teaches in this area. And you might think, well, that's easy for you to say because the pressure on you is greater than the pressure on me. But friends, I just wanna tell you, the thing taking men and women out of the church from your generation in particular more than any other issue, and I have these conversations all the time, are issues of sexuality and gender. They're the ones that are causing your generation to leave the church because they think the church is out of step with the time, and we absolutely are, but we're out of step because we believe what the Bible says. And I don't have time to unpack every part of that today, 
I know there's a lot of, there's a lot in what I just said. But friends, rest assured, the cost for all of us will always be wherever we are most out of step with the culture of our day, always. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are willing to pay that cost, whatever it may be, willing to pay it. Because we want righteousness, not acceptance, not ease, we want righteousness. So we're willing to pay it. Not in a self-congratulatory way, look at me, in a sober way that knows the pathway to honor God. Now listen, friends, the only way to do that, the only way to do that is to trust God, to, be, to, to know that he will deliver, to know that he will rescue, to know that he will stand behind you, he will justify you, to know that. It's the only way to do it. Daniel did it, Ruth did it, all those other heroes of the faith that I mentioned, they did that. So what diminishes our hunger and thirst when we're unwilling to do risky things? Your hunger and thirst for righteousness will be diminished by a lack of willingness to do hard things. But if you'll take up sacrifice, and I don't mean sort of grand gestures of sacrifice, I really mean daily committing yourself to things that require you to sacrifice. Finding a place to serve within the church where every week it requires you to do something, to show up and to give of yourself and to say, I, that's the sacrifices that I'm thinking of. Don't, don't, there will be moments for grand, big sacrifices, but most of life is small, a thousand small sacrifices, yes? You know that? It's, it's the, it's the 8,000th time that you've gotten up and just showed up to do the thing that you committed to do. When you do those costly things by faith, it builds your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. So friends, I could go on and on. I actually have one more hero in here, Zacchaeus, which is an unusual one, but I'm out of time, per usual. As we think about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, friends, I, I want to assure you, I wanna remind you, nothing else will satisfy. So don't fill yourself up with lesser foods, not just sinful foods that take away your hunger and thirst, but lesser foods, good things that you allow to take too great a place of precedence, sports, entertainment. Those are fine things. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when they take a place of prominence, they lessen your appetite because you're satisfying yourself with lesser foods and it will dull your appetite for righteousness. So trust God, learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be satisfied. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our right response is to come in praise of you. And I just, Lord, I know I prayed this to you after the first service. I wanna pray it again. Just for some reason with this text, more than, more than so many others, I just feel the inadequacy of, of the words. So just take one meager sermon now. Would you cause it to just let, set your word loose through it? You and your perfection, Jesus, know how to send your spirit to apply it, to convict and to comfort and to do the work that needs to be done. So would you do that? Take your word now. Let it sink in so that we, your people, might glorify you. Nothing, nothing less is at stake than your glory and our joy in that we would learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So bring it about, please. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're gonna worship the Lord together to close our time. So would you stand with me?